We're going to finish the Old Testament this morning, so let's open to uh, the book of Malachi, where Paul was reading our text for us. And I want to point out, it normally would um, end with a train of thought in verse 5, but I purposely read through verse 7 for a reason. I'll explain that reason when I get there. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. And he will purge them as gold and silver that they may... Offer to the Lord the offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who exploit wages, earners, and widows and the fatherless, and grant those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, right here is where the natural trade of thought would end. And in Malachi 3, it's basically um, divided into three sections. And the most popular section of it is verses 8 um, through 12 because It is the prosperity teacher's most favorite part of the Bible because it talks about robbing God because you're not giving your tithes and your offerings. And if there's anything they know, this is the one scripture they have pat down. And then, of course, it has the book of remembrance of um, in the last part of that, that someday the Lord is going to make you up as his jewels. Well, I told you when we get to the part that talks about money, we'll talk about money. And people say, you never talk about money at Calvary Chapel. And I said, we will. When we get to Malachi chapter 3, we'll talk about money. So, um, but don't walk out yet, because you might be surprised as we talk about money. So with that much being said, a little bit of review. Malachi's message... The entirety of the book is one of judgment. It is directed to the leadership, the priesthood. They're wicked in their practices. They have a false sense of security. The list here that of sorcery, adultery, perjury, taking advantage of people, exploiting people, this was their practices. They had a false sense of security just in the fact that they were sons of Abraham. And as a result... Um, We also have, in the chapter 4 of this, we've already done a study on this, so I'm not doing that this morning. It foretells, uh, in verse 1, the forecoming of John the Baptist. And if you look at the last two verses of the Old Testament, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, this is a double prophecy. It is speaking of both John the Baptist and Elijah. But we've already done that study in quite a bit of detail, so you can see Jerry if you want to get that message. 
It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, that's um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Revelation 11, verses 3 and 4 tells us that the two witnesses' duration of their ministry is 1,260 days. So we know that Elijah is going to be one of them. And we know that he will minister for exactly three and a half years before he's killed. But then it goes on to say, And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is clearly fulfilled with uh, John the Baptist, because it's quoted about John the Baptist. What we have here in verse 1 um, is a prophecy about the messenger. John the Baptist. Malachi 3, again, is the cornerstone of the prosperity teachers. Um, We could do that this morning, but we've already covered that verse by verse on a Wednesday evening. This morning, I would like to draw a contrast between John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, Jesus, and the prosperity teachers of today see what their lifestyle is, what their income is, and then what the word of God has to say on these issues from Jesus, Paul, and John himself. Um, While we were in Arizona, um, they have maybe five or six channels just dedicated to Christian programming. And so I saw all of them. And I thought, I'm going to do a little research on these guys. So I started doing some Googling. And I wanted to know, who, who are the top ten wealthiest prosperity teachers? And uh, this is something that you can do on your own. Uh, this is not in any order that I'm going to go through, but I'll give you uh, the, the, the ten that, um, that came up. And, but before I do, I was, <laughs> I was pulling things out of the back of my head a couple of weeks ago with the prosperity teachers. And... Um, And I mentioned Kay Arthur um, as one of them. (laughs) And uh, I could actually see some of the responses on Facebook. Kay Arthur's a prosperity teacher. (laughs) No, she's not. (laughs) I meant to say Joyce Meyer. Okay? But it came out, Kay Arthur. Kay Arthur is not a prosperity teacher. Ruth, do you feel better now? (laughs) Donna, Donna, you feel better? Okay, we're good. We're good. All right. But um, uh, Joyce Meyer, uh, she doesn't make that much. She only makes $8 million a year. Uh, Sephiro Dollar, uh, what a great name. Uh, he's up at $27 million in a year. Uh, the one that beats them all by a mile is Kenneth Copeland. He pulls in $760 million a year. Rick Warren pulls in $25 million. Joseph Prince, um, he, 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 I don't know if... I've seen him because of uh, the programming in in Phoenix. He pulls in $5 million. T-Day Jakes, he has a $1,700,000 mansion. I'm not sure of his payroll. Joel Olstein, $40 million. Benny Hinn, $42 million. And then Pat Robertson pulls in a cool $100 million. Now, while I was down there, I was watching... um, um, Judy came out wondering what I was doing because I was watching prosperity teacher after prosperity teacher. What are you doing? I said, I'm studying. (laughs) 
And um, I watched Joel Olstein get up, and uh, what he does is he starts every message like this. He takes out his Bible, and I'm quoting. He says, this is my Bible. I am what I, I, am what I say I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And um, I was watching the crowd, and they were only panning for the people that actually had Bibles, (laughs) because the majority did not. And from that point on, the Bible was never open. It was simply walking. I found something interesting about his quote. I counted it up. The word I and my occur 13 times. The word Jesus occurs once. He never opened the Bible once. It is the largest church in America. 48,000 plus people in Houston. So um, I'm doing this for effect. I figure, you know, some people you might think it's offensive Remember that the Lord told Elijah to lay naked for over 300 days in the streets in Jerusalem. If that's not uh, something to make an illustration, then I don't know what is. This is tame compared to some of the stuff the Lord had the Old Testament prophets do. Why did they do it? To get the people's attention. Our job is not only to teach, but to be fruit inspectors. Our job is to have discernment of what to look out for. If we're told and warned to look out for false teachers, unless I tell you who they are, how are you going to know? I I take no pleasure in doing that. But um, I want you to know that as we get into this this morning, uh, the Word of God has a lot to to say about the subject of money. And so we'll have a Bible study on money this morning. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Again, these are the... uh, um, key verses that deals with, um, um, and we'll come back and actually look at it a little bit later. But I want to start by turning to Second Peter, uh, chapter two, verses one through three. Let's begin with verse one. Oh, I'm looking forward to our. We just sent out the brochures for our pastors' conference. We have a great lineup this year. It's going to be on the life of Peter. Um. Verse 1 of chapter 2, 2 Peter 2, 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there are false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bringing on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemous. Now it tells us how they will do it. By covetousness. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. This clearly lays out that uh, we're not called um, sheep for nothing. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are gullible. And they're easily led astray. Or if you have a good shepherd, they can be easily led in the right way. 
And here, these false teachers exploit through covetousness. In other words, there's an alternative motive for why they're doing what they're doing. And it's all for self-gain. And here's the sad, the, the real sad thing about it. You know, the average Joe, he sees right through it. You know, he gets it. Uh, the young millenniums, they're not interested. They look at this stuff on TV and they just shake their heads. And I would too. I wouldn't want anything to do with it. Um, you know, I grew up in the 60s, so we were against that stuff anyway. You know, we saw mom and dad working hard getting all this stuff. They weren't happy. So I figured, well, it's not there. So that wasn't a real big deal for me to want to seek after material things. It just wasn't, it just wasn't seemed to be making people happy. I wanted to be happy and I wanted to be free. And so we start off with the warning, but let's go back to the messenger and find its fulfillment. The prophecy is Malachi 3, verse 1, I am going to send my messenger. So let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Uh, John 1, verses 6 through 8. We find, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This fulfills Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger. And now we read, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. Now, John's purpose, why did he come? Um, We need to... uh, backtrack just a little bit to go back to Luke chapter 1 and we'll pick it up in verse uh, 67 Luke chapter 1 verse 67 through 80 now this is a prophecy it is being spoken of by his father his father was a caretaker he would have been a Levite he would have been in charge, they were on a rotation basis of taking care of the showbread in the temple, making sure there was oil in the lamps. They were responsible for the prayer, incense, so on and so forth. And it was his turn to uh, have that stewardship. So he's in there, and, and an angel appears to him. Um, Zacharias doesn't believe what the angel is going to say to him, so he's not allowed to speak. He becomes dumb uh, for a season of time. Now, in 67, now his father, uh, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Now he's speaking of his son, John. 
For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Uh, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit. Now, I want you to especially notice the rest of the sentence. And he was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. We read about John that however young he was, he grew up in the wilderness, that he ate honey and wild locusts. When we visit Qumran, uh, it is very close to a place called Barabara where John did his baptizing. And for those of you who have been there, uh, they believe that this was actually a place that John stayed for a season of time. But what was his purpose? His purpose was to um, be a voice and to prepare the way of the Lord. And it tells us when Mary um, visited, um, Elizabeth visited Mary that she was, she was pregnant and that the child in her stomach jumped because John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Before he was born, he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that John was the greatest man who ever lived. Just take a Selah moment and let that sink in. The greatest man who ever lived. Never did a miracle. And he had one purpose. He's my messenger. And he's simply somebody who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, the one who is going to take away our sins. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Looking at the first seven verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Well, not only Malachi, but Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. For John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then all Judea and all around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sin. Now, here's what, here was his message. This is, John was definitely a seeker-sensitive pastor. I could just, I could just feel the love oozing out of John. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, that'll win your heart right away, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know what I put next to that? That was his message. Who warned you guys about hell? Who warned you guys about the wrath that awaits you? His message was one of repentance and a warning of wrath, not the wealth that's to come, but the warning of the wrath that is to come. 
And Luke chapter 3, he's eventually going to have to pay for his straightforwardness. I think that could happen to the church uh, shortly. In um, Luke chapter 3, verse 19, we read, Herod the Tetrarch was rebuked by John the Baptist. Now this is Herod. Concerning Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. In other words, he was having an adulterous affair with his brother's wife. And of all the evils which Herod had done. And also added this above all that, that he was shut John up in prison. So John basically is saying, sin is sin. And he goes up to the king of the land and he says, you're having an adulterous affair. And it really ticked off Herodias, and she would have no peace till she had John's head. Up till this point, though, he was simply calling sin, sin. And this is what's not happening in the church today. As I read the, the, the little script about the I and the my, um, it'll get you big numbers, it'll get you big dollars, but it's not the truth and it's not biblical. And that's a good place for an amen. amen. It's not the truth and it's not biblical. We're having a Bible study this morning on money and lifestyle. And we are to be fruit inspectors. What do you mean fruit inspectors? Well, um, a person's lifestyle. What's his lifestyle? How does he live? And by watching his lifestyle, well, Dwight, you're not supposed to judge. I don't judge. I don't know what your motive, what's in your heart. And I'm going to end the Bible study on a surprise, you know, talking about wealthy people in the Bible that God has blessed. So don't get me completely wrong here. But the ones that I've observed and the ones that I've mentioned, as I inspect their fruit, I'm not impressed with it. And it grieves me for one reason, because it's turning away people from the kingdom. That's what that was. When you read Matthew 23, Jesus talked to the scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against people, and you're not even going in yourself. What does that mean? It means people are watching you and you say, why would I want anything to do with that? And so we are definitely <laughs> fish that are swimming upstream. You know, the tailwind is not behind us. We're going against the flow of what is in mainline religion today. And I've watched good churches in our community that started so well. Maybe they weren't so big, but they were honest to this book. And I've watched one by one of them get sucked into the Willow Creek mentality. When they have a leadership conference, well, we'd have a leadership conference here. And you're going to have some of the best Bible teachers in the world. I'll guarantee you this. Every one of them will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And every one of them will know the word of God inside and out. And um, the ones that they have in uh, Bill Hybels' church, they're not even born again. They don't open a Bible. They're there to teach you how to be a leader from a business perspective using Peter Drucker's formula for success. And if you don't know who Peter Drucker is, he's a guru among the CEOs in America. Yes, they produce leaders, but not biblical ones. And this is where you need to um, know your Bible and not be afraid um, to name names when they need uh, to be named. So this gets John thrown into prison. For, for doing what? You know, 
if he would have been smart, Herod would have feared John. He says, you're right. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's a sin. I better repent. I don't want to go to hell. That's what Herod could have done. Instead, he throws John into prison. And it'll be the same way with you and I. If you call out sin, I'm going to call it a Calvary Chapel pastor before this, or was a Calvary Chapel pastor, before the service is over because he just performed a same-sex wedding. I got the email yesterday. And um, so it's not that I'm picking out different groups. You know, the Calvaries are vulnerable to the, the trends in our society today just as much as anybody else, unless you're careful. All right, um, well, let's go there. Yesterday, I received an email. It was uh, about a former Calvary Chapel pastor who was on staff at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I might add, after Chuck had passed. His name is Carl Cochran, and he performed a same-sex marriage. I need to say that the marriage was not held at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. It was held somewhere else. Nonetheless, it was a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he is now performing same-sex marriages. Paul's teaching, let's turn to Acts chapter 20. Boy, it got quiet in here after that last one. (laughs) That's where we're headed, gang, unless you're careful. Acts 20, picking it up in verse 18, Paul and his teaching about money and his own personal ministry. Let's pick it up with verse 18, uh, chapter 20. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. I served the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and to the Greeks repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in every city that there's going to be chains and tribulations that await me. Oh boy, would I love to have his ministry. Go to this town, get beat up, thrown into jail. Go to the next town, get beat up, thrown into jail. Go to the next town, get beat up and thrown into jail. That's what his ministry was. But, what a great verse. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and a ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among you who I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, you will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day, and this is great, that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And the verse that I want to be able to to save For I am not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And 
from among yourselves men will rise up uh, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I wish I could just cap on this one verse. Just think of what he just said. He said, I've been here for three years. And the message was over and over again. With tears, he says, after I'm gone, I know what's going to happen. There's going to get people that are going to come in here. They're not going to care about you at all. They're going to care about themselves. And then he says, and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you remember, uh, yes, you yourselves know that with these hands I provided for my necessity and for those who were with me. You need to know that when we started Calvary Chapel, that that um, they do what Paul did right here. We call it tent planting. Um, and they go out and they get a daily job. I painted houses for seven years before I could actually be supported by the fellowship. Great time. Painting houses. Mindless job. I could listen to music and chuck all day long. That's great. And I was my own boss on top of it. And uh, instead of just, you know, being put into to a position right away. The Bible says, be careful not to lay hands on any man suddenly, lest he be caught up in a snare of the devil. Well, what's that? Oh, I got a position. Oh, I just was raised up. Well, you didn't follow the example from the Bible of working with your own hands and being faithful and seeing that the people, um, you're there not for their money because you're out working. And, but if you lay hands on somebody and give them a position without going through that being faithful in the day of little things, that's what the Bible says. You've got to be faithful in little things before you can be trusted with bigger things. And that's what Paul did. He says, here's, here's, my, here's my lifestyle. I'll hold nothing back. I um, worked with my hands. Verse 35, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. They all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, soaring most of all for the words he spoke, which they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, that's exactly not true. They're going to see Paul in heaven. Amen? Amen. Uh, We were traveling and I got the news that uh, our good friend Paul Clark lost his mom. And he'd pretty much been staying with her. And um, I was just waiting for the right... I, I texted him and told him I heard. And I just said, I, I want to give you some time. And you let me know when it's okay to call. So I eventually, I, I eventually called him. I said, Paul, how are you doing? He says, oh, praise the Lord. Just great. Just think, my mom is in heaven. I am so jealous I can't stand it. And I called to comfort him, man. All he wanted to do was go home. And you see, that's the perspective that the Apostle Paul had. He said, bring it on. Oh, death, 
Where's your victory? Where's the sting of death? He said, I'm not afraid of that. You kill me, I go home. How do you, how, how do you lose with that? And so that is a proper perspective that we have. And the more you understand this book, that he who lives and believes in me will never die. What a glorious promise. And so that this is not our home. We are pilgrims and strangers here. This is not what it's about. You know, and unfortunately, we live in a society that from the time you're that big, you're already getting counsel. What do you want to be when you grow up? How many times do you say, I want to be a Christian when I grow up? I want to be a fireman, or I want to be something other than that. And then you go to college, and then you go to graduate school. What are your big plans? Gang, if it's not seeking first the kingdom, you're missing the point completely. That's what this book teaches. It's about heaven, and it's not about you. Well, it is about you. It's got a lot to say about you. There's nothing good about you. <laughs> In me dwells no good thing. My heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Oh, it's got a lot to say about me. If you see any good come out of here, know that it comes from there. Amen? Any good that comes out of you, give the credit where the credit is due. Because I know me. And um, so that's where we get the terminology. Well, praise the Lord. So something good happens. That's the reason we say praise the Lord. Because we know that it's not us. Let's turn, um, as this thing that Paul had was a contentment. Paul said that he learned to be content. And when I look at the prosperity movement, it's one thing that I observe is they're not content. They always have to have a little bit more. There's an old saying that says, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. And some people have to learn that lesson the hard way. Let's go to the Lord's teaching on worldly wealth and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, picking it up in verse 18 with the rich young ruler. Verse 18 says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the guy didn't get it, but the Lord corrects him right away, and he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And the guy actually says, I've kept all those from my youth. And I say, liar, 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 liar. (laughs) He kept none of them from from his youth. Well, I've never killed anybody. Well, did you hate him? Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Well, I've never cheated on my wife or had an affair or adultery. Well, the Lord says, if you've looked on a man or woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Guilty, 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 guilty. What does he say? Done them all. <laughs> so the Lord, getting knowing the only way he's going to get this guy's attention, and remember um, that the Lord often points out, as we're going to see with John the Baptist shortly, that um, the Lord knows everything about you. And what we read next at verse 22, so Jesus said, okay. Um, He said to him, you still lack one thing. I want you to sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, 
and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he being very uh, uh, sorrowful, for he was very rich. He couldn't do it. He loved his money more than he loved the Lord. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, hold it, hold it, hold it. I didn't really mean that. Just tithe and everything will be fine. No, he doesn't say that at all. He turns to his disciples. And he says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, well, who can be saved then? And he said, these things are impossible with men, but they're possible with God. You see, if it was up to us in doing any of the good works, we would never make it because we don't have any really good works. But this is a grace verse. How is it possible that I'm pleasing to God? I've accepted Jesus Christ by faith, by through his grace. And he has stamped forgiven and righteous upon me and upon you. That's how it's possible. But it's the only way it's possible. That's why when we hear of, especially uh, we were driving in yesterday and there's protesters now on College Avenue and it says, imagine world peace. Now, come on. We tried that in the 60s. That didn't work. <laughs> John Lennon, they're picking up old John Lennon songs. And then there was another group with white masks on their face on the other side of the street. And I was talking to Judy about it and I says, you know, without the Lord, people want something to live for. They want a cause. They want their life to count for something. That's why they're out there. They don't know the truth. And so they're looking for something meaningful to do. And so now because of the shootings and it's getting worse and worse and worse, people are finally having a cause to stand up. And this will be my cause. Uh, I'll take action in this area. But it's fleeting. And... um, uh, that won't bring the satisfaction that they actually are looking for. So the rich young ruler. Turn to Matthew chapter, uh, well, as long as we're in Luke, go to Luke chapter 12, which is just a couple pages back, verse 16. Then Jesus spoke a parable to him, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, well, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I know what I'll do. I will pull down my barns and build greater ones. There I will store up my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Kick back, take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Now, if that isn't common sense, I don't know what is. Work, how many people do you know that work all their life to retire and hopefully get a cabin somewhere so that they can enjoy it? And um, I remember I had a friend when, when I was doing my painting. His dream was to retire. And um, the day he retired and ready to go to his dream home, he died. So... All that he was looking for and planning for was all for naught. And all that he had saved, 
he couldn't take with him. And I can't tell you that this man was saved. But this is uh, one of the most common sense verses in the Bible. What good is it going to do because you can't take any of it with you? And he hadn't made preparations for his soul. All right, now let's go to Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 19. Basically, we're doing a Bible study on money and wealth. 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your heart at? Show me what you do with your pocketbook, and I'll show you where your heart is at. And that's what the Lord is coming out and saying. And he says, if you do that first, I like this um, bottom part. If you do that first, and then he says in 33, if you seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, then all these other things I'll take care of. If I can take care of the birds of the air, you're much more important than them. I can take care of you. And as far as the Lord's, his own personal lifestyle, T.D. T. D. Jake's 1.7 million mansion, how did the Lord live? Well, he says foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie his head. Our Lord and the Savior traveled for three years in ministry and really wasn't quite sure where he was going to spend uh, the evening. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, My messenger, I'm going to send him ahead to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus said that John was the greatest man who ever lived. Greatest, yes. Perfect, no. What do you mean perfect, no? Just flip over to chapter 11, and we read um, verses 2 through 6. Now, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Do you know how much that verse encourages me? Here's the greatest man who ever lived, who's having a moment of doubt. I remember somebody asked me to do an interview for a Christian paper years ago. And um, one of the questions was, do you ever doubt? I said, yes, I doubt. I says, Thomas doubted. The greatest man who ever lived doubted. I'm not going to try to put myself above those guys. So the honest thing is, yes, I believe, but what's the rest of the sentence? Lord, help my Unbelief. I believe in the Lord, yeah, but my feelings get in the way. Feelings and emotions, when I'm not feeling good, I can't tell you how unspiritual I feel if I don't feel good. If I'm feeling good, I'm feeling more spiritual. But when I don't feel good, I don't feel very spiritual at all. And here, here's the greatest man who ever lived, and he's asking his disciples, would you go check on Jesus and see if he's the one? (laughs) John, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that's you, man. 
Your whole job is to say, he's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. That's your job. And now he's doubting this? Yeah. He goes on to say, uh, so the disciples make it to Jesus, and Jesus answered and said to them, I'll tell you what, go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Well, that should have done it, because those are all the things that the Messiah would have done. But there was something here that only Jesus knew about John, and it comes out in the next sentence, and he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What was causing John to doubt? Well, he's doing all these other things, but there must have been something that caused pause in John the Baptist's mind that said, the Messiah wouldn't do that. Are you the one? Just ask him straight out, are you the one? Just tell John this. By the way, John, blessed is the man who's not offended in me, implying what? John, you're offended because of Jesus. Well, why would John be offended because of Jesus? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. So let's turn to Luke chapter 7. Doing a lot of turning this morning. I like hearing pages turning. Luke chapter 7. And we're looking at verse 33. Remember, John grew up in the wilderness. We read verse 33. Now, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, and he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by all her children. He was offended because Jesus was hanging out with people that were tax collectors. And um, I'll just give you one example. I could give you many, but for sake of time, I can only do one. And, um, and I think that is going to be in Luke chapter 19. So it's in the same chapter. Yes, it is. Go to Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he couldn't because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up to a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. So Jesus stopped and he saw him and he said to him, Zacchaeus. Make haste and come down, for I'm going to have supper at your house tonight. The Lord was inviting him home himself to supper. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, well, they murmured, Oh, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to his Lord, he said, Look, Lord, I gave half of my goods to the poor. I've, and if I've taken anything um, by false accus, accus, accusation, I restore four, fourfold. If you, if you stole something and you were caught, you had to give back twice as much. This guy doubles it. He makes it four times as much. 
And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We are to be in the world, but we're not to be of it. Now, some of the things that are happening in the churches in Europe, uh, the pastors are taking their staff out into the bars. But they're getting drunk in the bars. And they're justifying it by saying they're becoming all things to all people, okay? That, that isn't what's happening here. And that's wrong and it needs to be exposed and you need to know that that is inappropriate and not right. Good place for an amen? Let me lighten it up a little bit with a Spurgeon story. The great Bible teacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a Bible school. And in those days at the pulpits, you'd have to climb up the circular staircase and the pastor would be looking down on the people. He's way up there and you're way down there. Well, he had a Bible school. And in Bible school, at any moment, he could point to somebody. Don, I want you to come up and I want you to give a three-point message. And this could happen at any time. Spurgeon would do this. Now, Spurgeon was a big man. If you know anything about Charles Spurgeon, he was, he was just big. He's not only big, but he's up at his big tower. And so he looks down at Don and he says, come on up here. And he says, I want you to do a three-point message on Zacchaeus. And the guy stood up. He's, a, he's just a little short guy. And he starts making his way up to Spurgeon. Spurgeon's up here. He's down here. He says, three-point message on Zacchaeus. <laughs> he's scared to death. He says, Zacchaeus, point one, was a wee short man. I am a wee short man. Point two. Zacchaeus was up in a tree. I am up in a tree. Point, 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 point three. The Lord said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming down. (laughs) Isn't that a great story? The point is, Jesus did sit with tax collectors. He did find a way to get into conversation. He was a wise fisherman. He didn't um, become like them. He became all things to all people so he could win them. And that is being a wise fisherman. And that's what he did here, but that's what offended John the Baptist. And so the Lord had to put John uh, back in his, in his place. John Olsey would like you to believe that your best life is now. Just like what I said 13 times, it's either my or I, and Jesus has mentioned once. Without exception, every one of his books has the name I or my in it. And his most famous book is Your Best Life Now. And I'm here to tell you that your best life is not now. Amen? Amen? All right. Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us in heaven. So in closing, we finally had a Bible study on money. 
And in Malachi chapter 3 about tithes and offerings, the Lord says they robbed them. Should you do tithes and offerings? Yeah, Bible teaches that. But when you do a complete study of money in the Bible, is there anything wrong with money? No, absolutely nothing at all. Money is amoral. It means it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. The Bible says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's that covetousness that's there. You know that Abraham was extremely rich, so much so that they had to separate himself from Lot because they had so many herds of cattle. Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very large household, and he was the richest man at the time in his lifetime. And that was Job. And his best life wasn't then. (laughs) Solomon was probably the richest man who ever lived. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man and probably gave his tomb to the Lord. Is our job, while... um, Will we be rewarded? Yeah. Payday is coming. You know that? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to receive our rewards when he comes. I have no idea what that means. But I can tell you that payday is coming. And um, in the meantime, Malachi chapter 3, we're just messengers. Is being a messenger... I want to be like John the Baptist. And um, if we have to go out like John, then so be it. What I like about John, even though he was the greatest, he had his shortcomings and he had his doubts. And I can identify with that. So, Lord, I believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. And everybody said? Let's stand up and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And... Finishing now the Old Testament, we look forward to going through the New Testament. And we're grateful, Lord, that the Bible does touch on every issue, including money. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit now would just take these words and uh, apply them, uh, help us apply them practically uh, to our lives and have our priorities uh, in the right place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.